I want to welcome everybody back to the Behind the Wealth Show. I'm your host, Roger Abel. I'm back here. It looks like we got the plaid planner back. He's making a guest appearance. We haven't seen him for months. Welcome back, Eli. Back in plaid. I know. You, you surprised me today. You kind of went away from the plaid theme. And I, I don't know if it's really plaid. Maybe it's more checkered. Um, looks like a tablecloth for a picnic table. I feel like it's adding excitement to our life. I mean, been a lot of excitement this morning. We just saw a car accident right outside the window. That was pretty awesome way to start the day. Yep. But what's new in your world? Oh, just uh, just getting by one day at a time. That's how I operate. So I don't think about the past or the future. I just I'm in the moment. I like it. Um, mm-hmm. So it's funny. Right before the the show, I asked Mala, "Am I a millennial?" Because I'm kind of on that like age range. I was born in '78, and she said, "Well, it depends on where you look." So I look there, and I see that you guys are what well, you guys are millennials, and Molly brought the fact up there you're actually considered an elder millennial yeah and people should respect their elders so the younger <laughs> millennials should uh look up to us and pay us the, the proper respect um i was gonna say yeah you act more like you're from generation x than a millennial i think what does a gen x even act like i don't even like know. you that's must be pretty great yeah. uh, <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> Just completely awesome. Uh, well, what got me thinking about is the last, I don't know, year, year and a half, people have been talking about this great wealth transfer. And if you're not familiar, it's basically the assets being transferred from the baby boomer generation to millennials. And it's estimated that 30 to $68 trillion is actually going to change hands. And millennials or elder millennials like yourself believe it's going to them. And I've actually heard this from numerous clients, not numerous, a number of clients. Well, I plan on getting an inheritance. Have you heard that? I mean, oh, are you I've planning heard, on inheritance? I've heard plenty of people say that. Like their retirement plan, they think is really, I'm going to inherit money. Yeah, I don't. I honestly couldn't tell you if I will inherit any money or not but uh it's not uh, it's never been something i think about too much if it happens that'd be great i mean anyone's gonna want it if someone said hey you're gonna inherit some money no one's gonna take that as bad news so well and clearly as financial advisors when when this question or comment arises it's our job to try to get the individual to think about the reasons that maybe they won't get an inheritance. Even if their parents have a lot of money, there are reasons out there that they wouldn't get an inheritance. And we try to get them onto the right track to plan for retirement on their own. And if you get some money, it's strictly just a bonus, right? Yeah. It's just extra uh, icing on the cake, as they say. Right? And typically, if we talk about this with people, we're talking about the things that could actually take mom and dad's money, right? Mm-hmm. Nursing home, home health care, the most expensive things in life, if you look at the average cost of a nursing home, it's seven or $8,000 a month. Well, at $8,000 a month, if you get an extended stay at a nursing home facility, you can exhaust a fortune very, very, very quickly. And I know if you yeah. look at the statistics, the average nursing home stays 2.8 years or somewhere in that range. But I talk to people about, let's be realistic about how the nursing home really works. How it really works is you're there a few weeks or a few months, or you're there like 12 years. 
Very few people stay exactly 2.7 or 2.8 years, whatever the average is. And typically, the people who are there a long time are the females. They just have much more willpower than us males. You know, the turnover of male patients in a nursing home facility has to be dramatically higher than that of a female. Mm -hmm. So we talk about clients and millennials in particularly, maybe you shouldn't count on that inheritance. Well, I happen to be reading a Forbes article. It's one of the places I really like to go. And it's titled, Millennials are Banking on the Great Wealth Transfer, but maybe they shouldn't cash their check yet. The four words why you shouldn't cash your check yet. I love this part of the article. The The four words were, I love my grandchildren. I never thought about it, but my parents like the grandkids more than they like me. I'm convinced of it. <laughs> You're I'm yeah, I don't, there's no hunch. That's we, true. We don't think about it. And I don't think most people think about skipping a generation, but it could happen. I mean, I think we're to the point where there's all this wealth, wealth transfer. And I think about my situation. I'm very near the age of my parents. I mean, within 20 years, it's not like they're 30 or 40 years older than me. There's a chance my parents could outlive me. I mean, they could. And what am I going to do with it when I'm 70 or 75 or years old night if I inherited money from them. So maybe it's actually planning opportunities for grandparents. And I was thinking about that this morning. I'm like, well, maybe that's an opportunity as we go down the line. I've done a good job financially saving. If I don't need this money, maybe there's planning opportunities to not pass it to me and then me pass it to my kids. It goes right to the grandkids. But for those who are depending upon this for retirement, remember your parents might like the grandkids more than they like you. Uh, and they probably do. I think most families, isn't that how it works? Once you become a grandparent, then the the grandkids are the apple of your eye, and then your kids, you just tolerate them because they're the parents to your grandkids. Isn't that usually how it works? I mean, we kind of just tolerate our parents too, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking to yeah, all the yeah. mom and dads out there. Yeah, yeah. so, I, and I'll just, I mean, I guess for me, if someone, I don't know, if someone were to say, well, I don't need to save any money for long-term savings because I'm going to inherit my wealth somehow. To me, that's always just an excuse. I mean, I, okay, even if let's say that's true and you are, like you don't have any sort of like accountability or feel any sort of responsibility to provide for yourself. And uh, even a small, like even just if you did a small amount of long-term savings. I, so I think that a lot of times it's, an excuse amongst, uh, you know, other excuses why people wouldn't want to get started or do anything. I've seen this already with clients where they're not disinheriting the kids, but they are naming grandkids as beneficiaries along with parents. For years, it was just, yep, well, my kids are my beneficiaries. Now it might be, well, I want, let's leave the kids 70% and the other 30% I want to go to my grandkids. And it didn't just start this idea of not leaving your kids money didn't just start recently. A great example is Warren Buffett when he gave his kids, you know, X amount of shares of, you know, Berkshire Hathaway stock and said, this is your inheritance. The rest I'm leaving to charity. Do what you, you wish with it. Some kept it, some sold it. Um, but either way, we've seen this kind of push in the, the ultra wealthy to not plan on leaving all of their money to the kids, but Hey, we're going to leave it to a charity or something that we're, really, really jazzed up about not that they're leaving the kids out by any means. I mean, okay, if you leave your kids a billion dollars, they should be fine or a hundred million or whatever the number is. Yeah. 
but we've seen this push to leave it to other places other than just kids. And I guess I, I, one thing I started to think about when you were mentioning this could be a planning opportunity. Um, there probably is some good points or some very uh, beneficial reasons to maybe look at where you would want some money to go regarding inheritance because if possibly like let's say it's a scenario where you have parents or their parents who are grandparent age now and they've done a good job saving but they also have um, adult children who are working and doing well for themselves depending on depending on what their vision is for their you know for what they want want for their money when they're gone it might actually make more sense for the family to skip a generation and leave the money to the grandkids or even great grandkids at that rate. Um, so it probably is just like any other planning opportunity, the more proactive and the more you think about it, um, you know, the better result you'll get. But as far as the main point of this millennials banking on, on inheritance, um, you know, I'd rather see someone just, you know, bank on yourself commit to yourself, do your own savings plan. And if you get a little extra money at some point in your life, it's just all the better. I think those are good points. And we talk to people when we discuss beneficiaries that, you know, you have the choice to leave the money where you want to leave it or where somebody else does or where someone else wants to leave it, meaning you have control over this. So make sure that all your financial documents, your wills, your trust, your you know, all your beneficiary driven accounts are lined up how you want them because you would be surprised how many people haven't updated the beneficiary in their 401k, especially young people. This, this, I shouldn't say young. So this happened 20 years ago. I got into the financial services business and I'm helping my parents. I mean, it's one of the first things you do, right? Like they make you call your friends and family or neighbors and, you know, help them. I looked at the I looked at the beneficiaries on mom and dad's 401k. It was mom and dad beneficiaries for each other, contingent or who do you think it was? And I was 21 at the time. Probably their parents, their your parents, grandparents. Their parents. I said, well, is, it, is this intentional? They're like, no, we just never thought about it. So think about all the parents who, think about how busy people's lives are. You've got kids that are 15, 16, 18, 24, 25, and you've been at the same employer for 30 years or 20 years or whatever it is. And the beneficiaries you set could have been set when they were small children and you've never updated them. Do you want to intentionally disinherit them? I mean, there's one thing if you want to intentionally disinherit them to the grandkids, but do you want to disinherit them to their grandparents? It's I don't time know. To, yeah, it's so, time, time to think about who do you want in here and who do you want out? Yeah, and they, who's staying and who's getting hey, kicked listen, out? Depending upon overall performance of these kids, you get to change the beneficiaries at your liking. They can come and go, but uh, I think the point is just make sure all your stuff is up to date. We, I think that's one of the things we talk about on like the year end planning show. Mm -hmm. We usually do like make sure your beneficiaries are up to date. But I thought that was an interesting article because I'll be honest, I'm yet to hear that. Like I've read lots of articles about the wealth transfer and how it could transform investing because we all this money leaving balanced portfolios and cash and CDs going to millennials who are have a, a much bigger appetite for risk, and rightfully so, based upon their age. Um, but I've never heard that maybe they're not going to get anything because the parents love their grandkids. And, yeah, I, I actually think my parents like the grandkids more than me. 
Yeah, well, this right. So I'm with you. I never thought of it from this perspective. Um, if there is any inheritance in my future, I can tell you right now, it's being spent on toys for my kids. So I think. I mean, at the rate my parents, the grandparents in our family are spending money on toys, I don't know how anyone's going to have any money left over. Hopefully, they're all collectibles. The you be calling Fred yeah. Fritz or Frank Fritz. They're to all pick uh, your toy collection. They're all Beanie Babies and uh, Pokemon cards. At one time, Beanie Babies was a retirement plan. Let's all be honest. Yeah. Um, but kind of leading into that, um, and I pulled up just to refer, because I always lose this, but Gen Z, that's age is 9 to 24. So Gen, and Gen Z is the kids just younger than millennials, yep. kids in my so ba- generation. So basically, not even my kids. Apparently, my kids are what, Gen Alpha? I've got two-year-old and five-year-old. They're gen, Generation Alpha, Molly said. I don't know. But Gen Z, so basically, let's call this 18 to 24-year-olds. I read an article on uh, Yahoo Finance the other day. Uh, it said Gen Z is widely unrealistic about how much money stocks, crypto, and other investments will give them at retirement. And I think a growing theme of people, and let's be honest, who wants to work forever? Nobody. Nobody. I mean, if we had the choice to not work or work and do exactly what we wanted because we had all the money in the world, we'd all choose to do that. But most people are going to have to go to work. Mm-hmm. But there was a study of more than 2,000 U.S. consumers conducted in September. 27% of Gen Zers said they hope to retire before age 50. And I read that. And how are they getting age 50? Is that like the age where they think they can have enough or they just don't want to work that long? No, that's that's a pie in the sky idea. That's just, oh, that sounds good. So that's what I want to do. But is it driven, Elias, by the FIRE movement, financially independent, retire early, which Could if be. you get on YouTube, you'll see all of these people that have retired at 30 and 28 and 35, and they saved 80% of their paycheck. I think most of these people have underestimated how much money they can actually get from a million dollars. Right. If you save a million dollars by 35, I can tell you most likely you can't retire. That's not the number, because yeah, that's, if you look at what you could actually take out of that account. And have it last 50 years, it's probably like three percent a year. And probably the only it's probably possible, but you're not going to have much lifestyle like you won't work, but you're not going to do anything else either. And everybody sees a million dollars is a lot. And yeah, it becomes a lot later in life. It's not a lot. If you're 30 years old, you think about what son making a hundred thousand dollars a year earns. That's 10 years of income. You can't drive, you know, a hundred thousand dollars a year from a million bucks. And maybe you see crypto double and triple and you see the market go up 10, 12, 15%. But are those returns realistic and sustainable? And the answer is probably no. So, Elias, let's just break this down as to what a Gen Zer could expect to get by the time they're actually 50 years old. And what this article did is gave kind of the baseline of the assumptions made. So we assume that the Gen Zers earning the average salary for people of that age. That comes from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Um, the salary increases each year with the national average. They have a average starting balance in their 401k of 26,000, which if you were 21 and had 26,000, that'd be pretty good. They contribute 15% of their salary. So they're doing all the things that we tell somebody to do, right? Mm-hmm. 15% of your salary. Um, and we assume that the employer match was 3%. That's the average employer match for a study from Transamerica. They invest 100% of the 401k in the stock market. 
and stock returns exceed inflation over the next 25 years by 6% annualized. So really, they're probably looking at it between an 8 and a 9% static return every year. Yeah. So right away, we painted a pretty rosy scenario for the market because the market's not going to return you know, 6% every single year after inflation. It could average six, but it's not going to make six every year. Yeah, it's not going to be, right, 6% annualized year after year after year. So that Gen Zer thinks they're going to retire at 50, giving those parameters. So 25-year-old starts with 26,000, 15% going into 401k, 3% match, 8% gross rate of return, 6% after inflation. That would accumulate to 607,000 in today's dollars. Well, let me ask you a question. And we okay. just did a show on the safe withdrawal rate. You have a 50-year-old now, comes into your office. How much, rule of thumb, we're not running financial plans, we're not doing planning here. How much would you tell them they could take out of this plan on yeah, average I, and have a high probability that's not going to run out of money? The, the 4% rule is well, what I... So you'd say four. I'd argue it's probably closer to three because the 4% rule assumes a 30-year distribution for a 50-year-old. We're probably looking at a 40 to a 45-year distribution scenario. So I'd probably say 3%. Well, how many people are living on 18,000? I mean, the millennials are out, out promote, you know, protesting a living wage. Well, 18,000 is not a living wage. No. 18,000 is like no. a minimum wage job. Mm -hmm. So a Gen Zer who thinks they're going to retire at 50 on an average salary with a highly above average savings rate and a rosy assumption of 8% in the market, the best case they're going to get by 50 is a minimum wage job yeah. that's not $15 an hour. So I think yeah. they're wildly off on how much they actually think they can generate from this. Right. So, I, okay, I want to add a couple things that would actually make Okay, so what what would make it realistic to retire at 50? Because some of this is probably driven by that fire movement, but that's what, just reading through the assumptions in here, here's an easy one, contributes 15% of salary. Well, I would say in general, without, just in general, if you want to retire at 50, 15% of your salary, I don't care who you are. That's probably not going to happen. That's probably not going to work. You have to have your contribution rate has to be north of 25%, probably to even start getting in the ballpark of this is realistic. Well, we just did the show last time on how long it takes to actually get a million dollars in your 401k. And at a 7% rate of return, it was like 7% rate of return. You had to max out your 401k. So that was 19,500 a year. It took 23 years maxing out your 401k. So, yeah, so you're going to have to max the 401k number one yep. and it's still not going to be enough, but I can tell somebody how they can figure out if they retire at age 50. Well, what we could quantify it through what financial plan. It's really simple. Uh, I could tell someone exactly how much they have to save right. each year to get close. Obviously it's not an exact science because I don't know what the markets are going to return. I don't know what inflation is going to do, but it goes back to sphere of control. What can we control? We can control having a financial plan. We can control our contribution rate. So I could quantify it for somebody at age 50, but most people think they're going to retire before age 50. And the reason is they're winging it. They're not putting in the work to figure it out. Like, it sounds great. If 
If you told most people, yeah, at 50, I'll have a million bucks. Think you retire. Oh yeah, I can retire. You're retiring on 30 or 40 grand a year. No, no. And that's no. pre-tax. Right. I mean, I mean if I said you get a Elias at 50, I'll give you a $40,000 a year job. You'd be like, no, thanks. Well, that's what a million dollars is at 50. Right. And you know, at best you might be able to bridge the gap until you can start taking social security. But at that rate, you're not going to work, but you're not going to have, you're not going to have much lifestyle either. So I guess it, I don't know, all that stuff goes into it, but I do want to point out, see, cause now we're starting to talk about planning. Well, the first, one of the first sentences in this, 27% of Gen Zers said they hoped to retire before age 50. Well, there you go. It's, it's just a hope. They hope that they do. They're not planning on doing it. If they were planning on doing it, um, you know, they would probably either work with a professional or they would really commit to being a do-it-yourselfer and saving almost all the money that they currently make. And you probably, in your 20s, you're probably living in your parents' basement if you're saving that much money. I think that's really good insight that you caught the word hope because when we talk to people about why you do a financial plan, literally the first thing we talk to people about is we want to remove the word hope and luck from your financial future. And you're right. A do-it-yourselfer can do this. They have to put the legwork in. In fact, I wish they'd do a survey of people who think they're going to retire at 50 and see the people who say, I plan on retiring at 50 or I hope I can retire at 50. And the people who say I plan, well, how many of you have actually done a plan? And I'll bet you the people that plan on retiring at 50 have spent time quantifying what needs to be done. Yeah, it would be a that small per- they that survey this yeah. through. Of yeah. course, I wanted to retire at 35. Thought I was going to be a major league baseball player. Thumbs <laughs> down on that. That didn't work out. So now I'm a financial advisor. Uh, but I think those are all really interesting takes because I never really thought about, you know, what people hope to do. And then as I become a planner, lots of people hope to do a lot of things. But usually the difference between those who get there and those who don't is strictly execution, right? Focus yep. and execution. My wife and I, we were talking about Elon Musk, how he gets so much done. I said, well, I read an article where he sold all his homes. He bought a tiny house. He parked it in the parking lot at SpaceX because his goal was to be so focused and eliminate all outside mental intrusion because he wanted to focus all his brain capacity on SpaceX. And all he saw homes as a distraction. He saw traveling to work as a distraction. He's got a goal. He'll accomplish it. Most people, they hope they can retire. So a question I got the other day, Elias, and it made me think about it. We we talk about having a good asset allocation and building an asset allocation and a portfolio based on the results of a financial plan. Someone asked how often we rebalance. I thought it was a good question. We rebalance. Um, and they said, well, why would we rebalance? Why would we rebalance? That was a question. Why do we rebalance? Because this person thought of it, well, we're selling all the stuff that's doing really well. And we're buying the stuff that's not doing so well, especially in 2021. Mm -hmm. So if you think about just rebalancing in general, if a client started with a 50% stock portfolio and 40% bond portfolio in 2021, and the stock market is up 20%. They now have a 60% stock and 40% bond portfolio, which has treated them very well this year. The challenge becomes, 
And this is why I told the client we rebalance. One of the main advantages is we don't get outside of our risk allocation that we determine from the financial plan. Yeah, that so, to me, that would be the number one reason. So I, I thought it'd be good to cover what are the advantages of rebalancing and what are the cons? Because I don't want to paint a rosy picture that there's only one way to do this. You don't have to rebalance. Just understand what you're doing. Um, so advantages and disadvantages of rebalancing. Um, the number one advantage with rebalancing is it removes human emotion from the decision-making in, and what I mean by that is it makes us execute the number one rule in finance, which is buy low and sell high. Human nature is not to sell the winners. Human nature is to sell the losers. When you look through a portfolio, do you want to sell the worst ones or the best ones? Most people don't no, want to sell the best ones. People always want to sell the losers, yeah. Because they, because they believe and they have a bias that they're going to continue to lose. Right. Well, mm -hmm. We don't know what's going to happen. Right. So I think for me, the number one advantage of rebalancing is we have a very, very, very rigid way to execute good investment behavior. Yeah. And I guess another. So to go along with that. It eliminates some emotions, right, because if you've already decided. So let's say like the example you use, you've decided that a 50 percent stock, 50 percent bond portfolio is what is what's going to help me achieve my goals. And now your stocks have grown to 60% of the portfolio. Deciding to get back into your original parameters or the original mix, I guess that's a decision. You decided from this perspective, you decided to do that before it ever happened. So that would be what, like a prudent strategy or a prudent investing behavior. I'm doing it because I decided this is what I was going to do as opposed to um, I guess a knee jerk reaction to the markets yeah, or something. That's exactly why you do it. And we typically do it at the same time. It's really similar to what they do in glide path portfolios or target date funds. Most employers have a target date fund in their portfolio. They're rebalancing all the time to get back to the original allocation and actually dial back the risk. If you think about a glide path portfolio, if in your 50 and let's say it's a 10 year deal, 10 year portfolio. So it'd be a target date 2031. If that existed, you might start at a 60, 60% stock, 40% bond portfolio. And as they rebalance, they're going to 59% stock, 58% stock until at age, you know, 60, they're at a 50% stock, 50% bond portfolio. So rebalancing is happening inside of a target date portfolio all the time. That's how they get, their allocation drawn back. But what's the disadvantage? I think there's one huge disadvantage that we as investment professionals don't always talk about, but using a uniform strategy of rebalancing basically says we're going to sell our losers or sell our winners because we don't think they have any more room to grow. You yeah. think about rebalancing. If you really think about it, you're selling your best investments, which typically in good years are growth large companies, small companies, you're selling the ones that have the greatest growth potential long-term. Right. And so when I was reading this in the, in the article, the person pointed out when they're talking about the disadvantages of rebalancing was it's a pessimistic form of market timing. So that, that really, like I really started to think about that. And I, I've never thought of it, thought of it from that perspective. I thought rebalancing is 
I just thought of it more from the advantages angle. Well, I won't call it a pessimistic form of market timing. If you're rebalancing the portfolio, let's say annually, regardless of what the market did. I agree. Yes, I agree right? with that. If you're only rebalancing the portfolio when there's a large amount of volatility in the market, then I would say that's a pessimistic form of rebalancing, right? Oh, the market's up 30%, we should rebalance. But if you have a rigid rebalance and you say, hey, every December 1st, I'm gonna hit the rebalance button regardless of what happened, then you're not. that's not a pessimistic form of market timing. But it is if, okay, the market's up 32%, we need to rebalance. If you're only doing it on the way up. Right, because that, come, that plays into what he's pointing out or the person who wrote the article, the disadvantages of, you just decided to sell because you're assuming you're assuming um, the ones you're selling aren't going to go up anymore. And he's I guess the point was maybe that's not an assumption that you should just make just because the market's up. And, and which in the I article, agree with that. they use Tesla as an example. If you constantly sold Tesla, you just cut your position. Right. If, if you had 50 percent in Tesla and 50 percent in the bond index, you've just constantly sold your Tesla and you have fewer and fewer shares. Even though it's been a phenomenal investment for people, I'm not saying it is going forward, just in general, it's up 12 fold in the last couple of years. Um, and that's the example that they use in this article. Rebalancing also conflicts with a few common investment strategies that we actually do for our clients, right? One could just be a buy and hold. And I would tell you most people that have a buy and hold portfolio don't rebalance. If most, most people that have a commissional brokerage account that's not being professionally managed, they're never rebalancing, right? They don't, mm -hmm. they don't rebalance. And most of the time, those are mostly equities anyway, so it doesn't matter as much. But the other thing it goes against if you have a regular rebalancing process is harvesting losses to offset capital gains. You know, if you just randomly threw all of your non-qualified accounts into a managed portfolio, there's no respect to taxes in there. So you can't have this normal rebalancing strategy inside of a taxable account because you could inadvertently experience short-term capital gains or long-term capital gains that you didn't want to experience. We're dealing with this right now with the client. It's not a rebalanced account and they have large gains. So what do we have to do to sell those positions? We have to work around them. We have to have the traders help us work around the positions over a three-year period of time to make it happen. So there are some disadvantages to rebalancing. We typically focus on all the good stuff. But right. there's really three bad things. You're assuming a pessimistic outlook for high performers. It's not good for buy and hold. And three, it doesn't help harvesting losses to offset gains. Um, yeah, so, okay. So that being said, in a non-retirement account, in a taxable account, I mean, just rebalancing arbitrarily, that is something you wouldn't, you would not want to do that. That's, it actually could do more harm than good. Right. If you lock in some really big gains and um, so that would be, I mean, yeah, I guess from that perspective, looking at the taxable accounts, that's certainly just what to be on a, I'm going to rebalance once a year. That's probably not a prudent strategy in that account. It's where a do-it-yourselfer who tries to do everything right, have a non-qualified account, you know, non-retirement account. They're making contributions out. They've maxed their 401k, they max their Roth IRA. They've established this E-Trade account or TD Ameritrade or whatever. They're putting money in there. And everything they're doing in their 401k, well, I rebalance every quarter because they have an automatic button. And they think they go do that in the non-retirement account. 
they might be doing more harm than good. Yeah. They, and that's where lots of times people miss the small details of what makes them successful because what you do in a retirement account could be completely opposite a non-retirement account based upon your tax situation, how much money you make, all these different factors that go into what needs to happen to make you the most money and be the most successful you actually can be. Right. Well, in the trading in a retirement account, it's much easier because those tax implications don't happen until the money comes out. So it's not, you know, in a non-retirement account, if anytime you make a sell, that could potentially lock in some sort of capital gain for you. Well, and in retirement accounts, it's funny. 20 years ago when I started, there wasn't all these tools. There wasn't online accounts and, you know, go rebalance whenever you want. I remember my first account I had was a principal account. It's a principal 401k. And I would, it had a rebalance button, but I couldn't do it that easily. It wasn't like, oh yeah, set it on autopilot and let it go. And I think about what's happened over the last 19 years. And one thing that's happened is every single person that I know that has a retirement plan, they check their account balance online. It used to be, I'll get my statement once a month or every quarter and I'll look at my balance. But now today people check it every day. And I have this question posed me, how often should I actually go on and check my account balance? I mean, it's to me as often as you want, but if you're good, if you look every day and every day when you're looking at like you won't, you feel like you need to make a change or you're going to react to something you read in the news, then, you know, if, if that's what happens, then don't look every day, look at your monthly statement. I mean, there is, you have to have some responsibility. Like you need, you should look to make sure your money's still there and make sure it's getting invested the way you want it to. Um, I don't know. What do you, what do you think? What do you tell people? How often should they, I look at my accounts almost every day. So I think my advice would be similar to yours. It's really, um, understanding your relationship with investing. So if you're the person who has the propensity when the market goes down to feel like you need to make a change, I don't think you should look at that often. I think quarterly, my best, my best clients look at it quarterly. They never become emotional about it. Then if you're doing it more out of curiosity and you've, let's say you've been investing in this 401k for 20 years and you've never made a change other than maybe a rebalance or, you know, the company offered a new fund or subbed one out. But for the most part, you've never made a change. You can probably check it as often as you want. But what I know is that that's not human behavior. Human behavior is the market's down 10%. I have to do something. They People feel, I almost feel like the media and financial advisors made people feel like making changes needs to happen to be successful. What a lot of times doing absolutely nothing could yield the very best result. Yeah. Buy buy early and buy often and just hold it long enough. It'll work out. I think one of the reasons to look at your portfolio is if you're working with a planner and you're, you're looking at your risk, I would be looking more at not the value of the portfolio, but the construction of the portfolio. So let's go back to the person who's had this portfolio 20 years. Let's say they started working when they're 30. That up, and they just went and bought up some index fund. They've never made a change at 50 and you did a financial plan. Maybe it's time they make an allocation change based upon the results of your plan. So I'd be more, I would like clients when they go in there to look at stuff other than the balance. Most people just look at the balance, right? Mm-hmm. Go look at what, what are the stocks? What are the bonds? What's this made up of all the things that actually matter that they can control 
because they can't control the balance. The stock market controls the balance. All they can control is asset allocation risk that they take. Right. So I have a good, I have a good story about this topic. How often should you check? So I had a, a young, um, younger person come into the office. I think they're 28 years old or something, and they wanted to meet meet with somebody here. And so I'm asking them, you know, going through the process, asking them all the questions, ask about the 401k. Yep, I've been doing it ever since I started. I think their contribution rate was like 15% or something. They're getting a generous match. So then anyway, fast forward. So now um, they wanted some help with their 401k. So I said, yeah, sure, I'll look at it. Do you have your login? And they go, nope, I've never, I've never logged in. I'm like, oh, well, let's just set it up. So we got on there and set it up. And, um, and I go, so you, do you even know how much is in here? No, I've never logged in and looked at it. So I'm, th- I'm like, okay, it's probably going to be all cash or something. There's no investments ever even elected, but they're young so we can get it fixed. Well, this plan has a default target date fund. So we logged in and they had almost like $100,000 and they were <laughs> the, the person I'm working with. They're like, oh, wow, that's really good, isn't it? I go, yeah, that's really good. <laughs> no, but it just goes to show it goes back to the Fidelity did that study. Um, it was in um, uh, whose book was it? it was in a book. Um, Dr. Daniel Crosby's book, The Laws of Wealth. And there was a study by Fidelity. They went back and surveyed their clients who had a propensity to outperform the market. They tried to find commonality. What was the most common reason they were doing better than the market by a vast margin? They held longer than anyone else. No, they forgot they had the account. That was the common (laughs) answer. The people who had outperformed the market, they forgot they had the account. But it just goes to show a lot of times we just get in our own way. Um, So with that said, if anybody out there is looking for help, getting a financial plan or want some guidance on your asset allocation, you can go to btwellshow.com and get us. I enjoy the show today, Elias. We're getting ready for the holidays. You have any closing remarks? Everybody, uh, thanks for listening. And uh, yeah, have, have a good, happy holiday season. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPIC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.